Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, if you have ever been to a flower show and wondered how the incredibly beautiful and intricate exhibits came about, today you will get your answer. I'll talk with Kelly Norris, who's one of the featured designers at the upcoming PHS Philadelphia Flower Show. But first... Iowa has a new poet laureate. Vince Gotera is the state's fifth poet laureate, and like those who have come before, his career is long, distinguished, and varied. He's a professor of English at the University of Northern Iowa, where he has taught creative writing and literature for nearly 30 years. He's an award-winning poet who's published more than 300 poems, including four of his own collections, with three more collections and a novel in verse on the horizon. He served as the editor of the North American Review from 2000 to 2016 and was editor of Starline, a print magazine of the International Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association for three years. He's also a veteran and a bassist and guitarist. And before we meet him, our outgoing Poet Laureate is here with us. Deborah Marcourt has served as our State Poet Laureate for four years. That's two terms. She is also an accomplished and award-winning poet and author and distinguished professor of English at Iowa State University. Welcome, Deb. Hello, Charity. It's so great to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. And last time we talked... We were in the midst of this selection process for a new Poet Laureate. Um, The appointment is made by the governor, but there's a committee that recommends three finalists. And, I mean, this is a state with a lot of really incredible poets, Deb. What is that process like? That's right. I mean, it's really exciting because we had such a rich pool of candidates, and um, so it bodes well for the future of the state of Iowa in terms of poetry and also the state of the, the state of the laureate position, because um, there are some people waiting in the wings who are just incredibly accomplished, but also really enthusiastic um, doing all this work in communities around the state. This, so, you know, uh, you asked about yeah. the process and it was basically, it's a, it's a committee. Uh, this, this whole thing is really run by humanities, Iowa and uh, department of cultural affairs, Iowa arts council. And, um, and so, the, therefore, they really, you know, they really take care of the manage the whole process of nomination and then consideration of candidates. And then, you know, there are three names that are sent forward to the governor, and the governor really makes the choice. And so, um, she made, in this case, she made a wonderful choice. <laughs> and the job of the poet laureate, I mean, this is an honorary position, and it creates a lot of opportunities. But you kind of make it your own, right? I mean, nobody really tells you, you're Poet Laureate now and you have to do this. Oh, that's right. I mean, there really is no uh, sort of over-control of the of the role. And, you know, I just, I always took it as a mandate to just accept invoca- invitations and go out into communities that were interested in hosting events, um, no matter what they were. I did a series of um, sort of uh, hike and write uh, seminars where we went out with naturalists and sort of walked around certain landscapes and heard about the natural features and then went back to the interpretive center and wrote poetry. And I did some music events and, you know, I did some museum events. Um, and of course, lots of libraries and, um, 
and I fell way behind in my email, and I didn't get back to everybody, and I feel really bad about that because I was raised Catholic, of course. So, um, <laughs> a lot of guilt. Yes, a lot of guilt. But um, you know, the amount of the invitations tells us that there's just a lot of interest in poetry and hunger for it. Well, and you became poet laureate right at the beginning of the pandemic, so you were in an unusual position where a lot of the things that you had hoped to do were not possible, <laughs> really, at least for that first year, maybe for that first two years even. But looking back on your tenure as state poet laureate, what are you most proud of? Oh, um, well, I think that it's probably the um, uh, Academy of American Poetry Fellowship that I got um, which allowed me to accept some invitations that I really wouldn't have because of the pressures and the demands of my like real job, you know. And so it's sometimes hard to say yes because there are expenses involved in going out, just, you know, driving, staying in hotels, t- getting someone to take care of my dogs, you know, all of those expenses. But when I got the Academy of American Poetry um, Fellowship, that helped fund a lot of my activities and... Um, and so I think, you know, it was it was called Sounding Our Place, and it was all about where do you live? Um, uh, Jennifer Drinkwater has this, here at Iowa State, has this wonderful project called the What's Good Project. And I just really admire that project, where she goes to communities and says, what's good in your community? And uh, the Sounding Our Place was a little like that, because I was able to go, again, into some natural environments state of Iowa is incredibly varied landscape in terms of the, the bioregion and what's contained, you know, between the the Les Hills and the eastern part of the state with the Mississippi. And, and so for me, it was just so rewarding to get to see all of the diversity of the state um, and uh, meet so many people and talk about not only their love of the state, but their love of poetry. Tell me why you are so excited that Vince <laughs> is going to be our new Iowa Poet Laureate. Well, he's a fellow musician, so, you know. I right, is that, a, is that a requirement <laughs> that you have to be a little, at least no. a little bit of a rock star to also <laughs> be the State Poet Laureate? I know Vince is probably listening, so I'm thinking, Vince, let's do some gigs together, yeah. do poetry reading and gigs. But I'm stepping aside and, you know, obviously handing the tiara to, to Vince, and I'm so, so excited about it. Um, but but anyway, I think that um, yeah that that's what's exciting about Vince is that he's already so engaged. You know, being editor for all those years of North American Review, which is really the oldest literary journal in North America and one of the most distinguished. To get a poem in that journal is just you know over the moon. And um, many years ago, I mean, Vince has always been one of those people who brings communities together. One of my first, very early when I moved to Iowa in 91, I remember Vince organized this uh, Gathering the Tribes uh, conference where a lot of us academics in creative writing were invited to UNI. And we met people that we normally don't get a chance to interact with who are, you know, working away in their own institutions. And, And Vince facilitated that. He had the vision to do that. And that's created all these longstanding relationships, um, it's probably something we should do again, but it's so much work. <laughs> but for that and many other reasons, his poetry is so rich um, and beautiful and complicated, goes into issues of social justice. And um, as you read his bio, we see the just incredibly um, long and complex 
um, life story that he brings to his poetry, which just makes all of it so much richer. Having been in this role for four years, Deb, and, and as I mentioned, I mean, it's it's not a really well-defined role, which gives you the opportunity for creativity, but it also, I'm sure, feels a, a little bit um, challenging because you are creating this position anew. Do you have any advice for him? <laughs> um well, I would say maybe try to convince your institution to give you some um, some relief from your your r- real job job load in order to um, be able to fulfill the mission. I think for me that was always the the difficulty was the time involved in sort of not only arranging the 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 events, um, just all of the logistics of communicating with people who are interested in hosting an event. So I think, you know, asking for maybe support from the two institutions that upon which this laureate position stands, and then also maybe from the institution to which he belongs, that, you know, maybe some of these institutions can kind of step in and say, this is important to us, let's give you some support. So that, that would be probably what I would say um, he should ask or ask for. Now, my, my predecessor, Mary Swander, put it much more simply, if you recall, when we had this conversation four years ago. Mary said, well, there's no money involved, I have to tell you that. <laughs> so uh, um, I think that it's not a question of money. It's just a question of valuing the Poet Laureate's time and helping them do the job that, that you know, they, they want to do and can do. Um, but that, that's probably my biggest piece of advice. Deb, thank you so much for talking with us today, and thank you for being our State Poet Laureate for the last four years. You did a beautiful job. Thank you so, I'm so much. I'm so honored, and I'm so happy with um, you know this turn of events and so happy to invite uh, you know the incoming laureate into our ranks. Deborah Marcourt has served as our State Poet Laureate for the last four years. She is an accomplished and award-winning poet, an author, and distinguished professor of English at Iowa State University. And now it is time to meet our new Poet Laureate, Vince Gotera. Hello, Vince. Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for being here. And I know that when we invited you to be on the show, you, you said, well, I don't really know what it means yet. To, to be Poet Laureate. So is it a little bit overwhelming here at the beginning? But yeah, thanks for having me, Charity. Um, yes, it is. Uh, I, I am getting an orientation from Iowa Arts Council and Humanities Iowa next week, uh, and so, or this week, actually. And so I will know more soon, but, but uh, Deb and, and uh, Mary uh, Swander have... have uh, been talking to me a little bit about this, and I've learned a lot just today uh, <laughs> listening to Deb. Um, by the way, Deb, yes, I'd love to, I'd love to, uh, to jam with you, and <laughs> we, we have played together in the past, or played on the same bill in the past, and uh, and also, um, it just so happens that I am retiring uh, in June, and so Deb's advice about getting. Uh, some time off uh, and some support from the University of Northern Iowa um, is getting taken care of by <laughs> by life events, and so I I won't be teaching uh, in uh, you know in these next years. 
when I will be doing the Poet Laureate uh, duties. Nice. Well, it, you have a, a a lot of other things on the horizon as well, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. We are going to take a short break. I'm talking with Iowa's new Poet Laureate, Vince Gotera. He is the state's fifth Poet Laureate. He is a professor of English at the University of Northern Iowa. He's teaching his final semester at the University of Northern Iowa. He's taught creative writing and literature there for nearly 30 years. He's also an award-winning poet who's published more than 300 poems, including four of his own collections. He has three more collections and a novel in verse on the horizon. We will talk more in just a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in a few minutes, I'll talk with Kelly Norris, who is one of the featured designers at the upcoming PHS Philadelphia Flower Show. I'll talk with him about creating his exhibition. But with me right now is Iowa's new Poet Laureate. Vince Gotera is the state's fifth Poet Laureate. He's a professor of English at the University of Northern Iowa, where he's taught creative writing and literature for nearly 30 years. He is retiring after this semester. He's also published more than 300 poems, including four of his own collections, with three more collections and a novel in verse on the horizon. He served as the editor of the North American Review from 2000 to 2016. He is also so a veteran and a bassist and guitarist. And Vince, let's talk a little bit about your life. You grew up in San Francisco. Do you remember when you first started encountering poetry and, and thinking about poetry? Uh, yes. Um, I wrote my very first poem, I think about six years old. Um, and I... Uh, was on a ferry boat with my dad, and I, I is one of my strongest memories. Uh, and I remember looking up at the sun and wondering about it. And then, when we went home, uh, I wrote uh, a poem about about the sun. And uh, it, I remember that I don't have this poem any longer, but I do remember that it was um, uh, it was a rhyme poem. Uh, a B A B, you know, in in four line stanzas, and um, uh, and then it got published uh, in the in my grade school newsletter, which is why I'm guessing I was about six years old. I don't exactly know what age I was, but that was the very first very first poem I wrote, and uh, and then uh, I had um, a teacher, an English teacher in high school, uh, Mr. Grady, who. Uh, who encouraged us to write poetry, and I and I did uh, quite a bit of writing at that time, but then uh, eventually studied uh, poetry writing uh, at Stanford University, where I where I um, where I went to, uh, to college at first. You are a first generation Filipino American. 
Um, did did poetry fit in with your your parents' vision of of what their son should be doing as a career? You know, uh, they they never uh, they never had any any plans for me in that regard. They just wanted me to excel, and uh, and so I do remember that when I was about nine, I wanted to be a, a nuclear scientist. <laughs> and then I eventually did in college study some astronomy, but but it's been English pretty much all the way. You also served in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. You were drafted. How long did you serve? Uh, I was not drafted, actually. Oh, not? I was, okay. uh, I, I had, uh, there was a draft lottery that some people I'm sure remember, uh, and uh, I had number 30, and so I knew that I was going to go. Yeah. And um, this was in, uh, in 1972. And my dad is a retired Army officer, and so he encouraged me to, uh, to go ahead and join up, you know, so that I would have some control about what I would do. And I ended up uh, spending three years in the U.S. Army uh, and was never sent to Vietnam. In fact, I, I was hardly out of California. I was uh, stationed at Fort Ord, uh, California, and then eventually at the Presidio of San Francisco. What made you want to pursue academia? Because you you have a lot of degrees to your name. <laughs> yeah. Well, I uh, I got my 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 bachelor's degree. I went off to the service and then came back and finished my degree, and uh, then started teaching uh, in a Catholic girls' school in uh, in San Francisco. Like Deb, I was also raised Catholic, and and they actually had me teaching English, algebra, and religion. <laughs> wow! And I was not I was not savvy enough at that time to realize that I was just a guy plugging plugging a hole in the schedule. And uh, but in any case, I I realized from that experience, I did that for one year, that I did want to be a teacher, uh, but but not of uh, that age, uh, high school kids. It was not a good match for me. And so I went on from that point to, uh, to get uh, advanced degrees to teach college. Where does music come in? When did you start playing? I started playing, I, I have been playing guitar for 60 years. I started when I was 11. And I, you know, I was in a garage band back then. I was in seventh and eighth grade uh, or somewhere in there and uh, played in, in, um, in uh, in bands all through high school, you know, and then actually all the rest of my life. And and these days, I am the bass player of the band Deja Blue uh, from Waterloo, Iowa. And uh, we play every Wednesday at the Screaming Eagle Bar in downtown Waterloo. I, I have a really hard time figuring out where you have fit in all of the things that you have accomplished in your career. But I, we, I guess talking about time management, which you're clearly very good at, is, is not very interesting. But how did you wind up in Iowa? Well, I, um, I went to, uh, I did my PhD at Indiana University in Bloomington and, uh, and met, uh, Marianne, uh, who became my wife uh, until a few years ago. And um, then we moved to California, where I taught at Humboldt State University. And uh, she uh, wanted to come home to the, to the Midwest. And so that's how we ended up back here. And you've been here for nearly 30 years. 
Yep, this is my 29th year. Wow. Um, you had so many interests and have gone in so many different directions. Do you feel like your career in academia has competed in some ways with your career as a poet and, and a writer? Um, yes, uh, a little bit, particularly when I was the uh, editor of the North American Review. Um, I used to read about 10,000 poems a year. And so that takes a lot of time, you know, and I would I publish maybe a couple hundred of those um, each year of the 16 years that I did it. And um, in fact, uh, I remember uh, publishing one of Deb's poems. Uh, I forgot the title now, but I remember that it was about the word husband. And um, I've met a lot of, a lot of uh, poets over the years and also a lot of Iowa poets. So there was, uh, I used to always go to the Des Moines National Poetry Festival that ran from 91 to, two, to 2005. It was established by Jim Autry, uh, who was, uh, I think, a vice president of the Meredith Corporation. Anyway, um, they uh, had me uh, read. Uh, there were always three uh, national poets and three Iowa poets that would be um, uh, guests uh, reading at that festival. And I was very fortunate to read there in 96, when I was uh, brand new in Iowa and met a lot of poets. And in fact, Deb mentioned that I organized uh, a conference at UNI called Gathering the Tribe. And I did that after uh, the Des Moines National Poetry Festival ended because I missed seeing, seeing all my sister and brother poets, you know, uh, um, uh, every year. And incidentally, the, it, that has uh, a new... Uh, Festival has begun a poetry palooza in Des Moines that that starts uh, started in 2023. So there's uh, there's going to be community again, and I, I hope to foster some of that in my laureateship. Do you feel like Iowa is particularly fertile ground for poets? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because of the writers' workshop in Iowa City. Um, uh, Iowa is is uh, one of the capitals of of creative writing in the world, and so uh, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful place for for poetry. I'm talking with Vince Gutera. He is the new state poet laureate, our fifth poet laureate in Iowa, and. Vince, I would love for you to read us one of your poems, and and you've. You've brought several with you today, but I'm going to let you pick the one you're you're most excited to share. Okay. Uh, I write uh, quite a lot about pop culture, particularly music and especially rock and roll. Uh, I write also about, uh, about history and especially war uh, because my uh, family has a, a long history uh, of serving in the U.S. Army. My grandfather served in both... Uh, or fought, I should say, in both in the First World War and the Second World War. My father was a, uh, was a, a veteran of the Second World War, um, in, uh, along with, his, uh, with my grandfather, with his dad. Uh, they were um, uh, POWs. And then my brother uh, was a combat vet in Vietnam, 
And then, um, and then as, as I mentioned earlier, I was also not a combat vet, but a Vietnam-era vet, uh, U.S. Army still. So I read a lot about that. And then also I, I write quite a lot about, about family and memory, and particularly uh, Filipino and Filipino-American life and culture. And so uh, the poem I'll read today is a love poem uh, of sorts, I should say. The, the novel in verse that you mentioned is called Aswang Love, and the Aswang is a mythical Philippine monster. And in my, um, in my novel and poems, uh, there are two Aswang. One is a shapeshifter who becomes a were-dog, a big black dog. And then the, the woman in the relationship is a, uh, is a vampire, a flying vampire. And they um, are uh, in danger in the Philippines. This, uh, the, the novel is set in 1937, and they are in danger. They have fallen in love, and people have found out that they're monsters. The, the Aswang turn into monsters at night, but during the day, they're regular folks. And so they uh, move to the U.S., where... Presumably, nobody knows about about Aswang, and this is their arrival. And this is uh, this is called Aswang Honeymoon at the Golden Gate, May twenty sixth, nineteen thirty seven. The two uh, the two characters are are Clara and Santiago, uh, whose nickname is Tiago. Aswang Honeymoon at the Golden Gate. Isn't that simply magnificent, Tiago? Clara pointed above the steamship's prow as they sailed under the brand-new bridge, its orange towers gleaming in the setting sun. Tiago could only nod, speechless, at the beauty of the orange cable shimmering as they swooped in a graceful arc. Thousands of San Franciscans had walked across the Golden Gate that day, a grand feat never before possible. Clara and Tiago hurried but got to the bridge too late, almost dark. The next morning at the dedication... People snickered at the loony old man, the bridge watchman, who swore he'd heard leathery wings walk, walk, and saw silhouetted against the moon a bizarre flying thing holding a gigantic dog. Holding a dog? Nearby listeners laughed, pantomiming drinking from a bottle behind the poor man's back. Crazy drunk, they whispered to each other, smirking. How beautiful it must have been on top of the 800-foot tower, nearest to the glistening lights of San Francisco, tiny diamonds strewn on jet-black cloth, the bride's wings beating slow and soft, the groom's canine fur shining sable and sleek, holding hand and paw in the velvet night, a thousand stars showering glittery light. That is Aswang Honeymoon at the Golden Gate by Vince Gotera. And this is from your forthcoming novel in verse. And I mentioned earlier, you have three more collections on the horizon. You are retiring this spring. (laughs) It sounds like you have big, big plans for your retirement. Well, I, I guess so. I guess I guess so now. <laughs> I've been appointed, uh, and then of course I'll also continue to play music uh, with with Deja Blue, and uh, so um, yes, uh, I'll be very busy. 
So we were talking earlier about at times feeling like your uh, academic career was competing with your career as a writer. Does it feel to you like retirement is the opportunity to really, really expand your creative work? Well, of course. Yeah, sure. Um, I uh, am actually uh, one of the collections that I'm working on right now is uh, called Dragons and Ray Guns. And this is a science fiction and fantasy uh, collection of poems that are uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror, uh, usually called speculative uh, literature. And so I'll be continuing to do that uh, uh, along with uh, playing music and, and being the Poet Laureate. Through the years, uh, Deb was mentioning um, your building community of poets in, in Iowa and giving people an opportunity to connect. You've done that in a lot of other ways as well, by connecting with other veterans who are poets, by connecting with other writers of Filipino ancestry. Tell me a little bit about building community, why why that's been such a priority for you. It's been a priority because community is really how how we advance uh, literature and the arts. I think that there's a, a myth about, you know, a poet or an artist being in, in their studio, in, in a garret, perhaps, you know, just by themselves. And really, that's not how the way it works. Uh, art to be alive and to be, um, to be vital um, has to be shared, and it has to be shared not just with, with people who are in the arts, but also with everyone. And so that's what I hope to continue to do. You're very new to being the State Poet Laureate. Have you started thinking of, about what this opportunity might allow you to do? I have, and uh, and I, I'm not sure at the moment what what my project will be. I do uh, hope to create a project that will involve uh, um, somehow sh- showing uh, Iowans across the state all of the 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 wonderful work that's being written and and uh, created uh, in Iowa poetry. Well, I'm sure we'll have more opportunities to talk over the next couple of years. Vince Gotera, it's just been lovely to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Vince Gotera is the state's new poet laureate, our fifth poet laureate. He's a professor of English at the University of Northern Iowa. He'll be retiring after this spring semester, his final semester. He has published many, many works over the years, including four poetry collections. He has three more poetry collections and a novel in verse on the horizon, and I'm sure We will hear much more from him over the next couple of years, at least. Coming up in just a moment, we are going to talk about an exhibit developed for Philadelphia's upcoming flower show. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The PHS Philadelphia Flower Show is the nation's largest and longest-running horticultural event. This year's event is coming up March 2nd through the 10th, and Iowan Kelly Norris is one of the featured designers at the show. His exhibit will be both beautiful and thought-provoking. Kelly Norris is a self-employed planting designer and author and former director of horticulture and education at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Gardens, The theme for this year's Philadelphia Flower Show is United by Flowers, and Kelly is creating a beautiful disturbance for the show. Hello, Kelly. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here. And I mean, for people who are not familiar, including me, with the Philadelphia Flower Show, uh, obviously this is a very big deal. Can you put this in perspective for me? Uh, Well, it is the country's oldest and longest continuously running flower show. Uh, It is a a spectacle of horticultural and and floral arts uh, that uh, is a longstanding and and deeply rooted tradition uh, in the Philadelphia region. So uh, I I was sort of floored and and honored to uh, be asked to uh, be featured this year. And how did this come about? How did you get selected to be one of the featured designers? Uh, Well, I, you know, I have been in conversation with folks at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society for a number of years. I have a number of colleagues who work there, and uh, we've explored various possibilities of working together. And uh, actually, a conversation we started maybe two or three years ago uh, eventually uh, gave rise to the exhibit that we're doing this year at the Flower Show. Having been to a few flower shows, not many, but a few in my day, I mean, when you see some of these exhibits, they're just mind-boggling to to think about bringing all of these elements together in full bloom that's an incredible process. How <laughs> yeah. how long have you been working on putting this together? We've been working on the exhibit since last July, actually. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think the thing you have to underscore for folks is that you know this is the entire Pennsylvania Convention Center in downtown Philadelphia turned into a bonanza of uh, horticulture and flowers. And you know it's it's in March, so I mean we're we're forcing all of this. Uh, it's it's very theatrical. It's it's a form of horticultural theater. In some ways, uh, you know, there's no soil. It's a concrete floor. And so all of these uh, elements have to be thought about how we build up from uh, this sort of flat surface on a hard floor to create something that looks like a garden that just, you know, manifested uh, on the floor of the convention center. Tell me about the concept for your exhibit. The exhibit is called A Beautiful Disturbance. And, you know, what I wanted to explore in the exhibit was you know, the idea that we need to reconsider our relationships with the vegetation of the places we live and work. And, you know, I'm, I'm a boy of the prairie. I'm an Iowa farm boy, but I, I've lived my whole adult life in cities and I've had the you know good fortune to travel uh, to many of the great cities of the, of the world. And, you know, cities are this sort of curious human phenomenon. And, and yet are, are today in, in the 21st century, these you know, refugia of so much life. And, and you think about in the U.S. today, the um, you know, some cities that have high levels of abandonment from, uh, you know, lots and real estate that have, has turned over in the last uh, many years from uh, transitions in the economy or, or what have you. We have a lot of space. Uh, we have a lot of places in cities that maybe deserve uh, a higher level of recognition that we drive by every day and, and don't think much about. And, and yet, there are 
sort of harbors of incredible amounts of diversity that are part of the patchwork quilt of the uh, the rather disturbed and novel ecology of cities as we know them today. And so this this exhibit kind of explores what it means to make a garden in a space like that and, and maybe even along the way uh, ask people to question what a garden even is. So you talked about the convention center being just a concrete space. You are, are sort of doubling down on that <laughs> by, <laughs> by creating a garden in, in something that looks like a vacant city lot. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we sort of, uh, you know, we always say that, um, you know, my work is site specific. And so I guess we're taking that to the ultimate level here because we're we're embracing the concrete of the artificial circumstances we're working in. But, uh, you know, seriously, you know, we, we leave Wednesday. Our first, uh, you know, uh, item of business on the floor Thursday morning is to uh, place uh, five bin blocks that are you know like jersey barrier you know concrete barricade sort of things that are about 3000 pounds a piece and oh, so wow. you know we're we're grounding the exhibit in this frame of uh, urban ephemera, concrete, chain link fence, a dead tree that our local partners actually just cut for us yesterday. <laughs> and we're texting me photos and like, we found it. We found the dead tree that gets to go in the center of all of this. So, you know, we're, we're, we are truly leaning into all of those features that you would expect to see in a kind of feral urban setting. And yet this is the Philadelphia Flower Show. And so we're, we're, we're challenged, we're, you know, we're creating this wonderful contrast and challenging people to see, you know, the artfulness of what we can put inside of that rather hard frame. You're also showcasing some species of flowers that may not be welcome in in many spaces. I mean you're you're showcasing showcasing some species that grow very well in difficult spaces but also can be labeled invasive. Tell me about this. Yeah, you know, the thing about cities is cities act as a a kind of a filter on you know, organisms of all stripes and that, you know, to kind of get by in a city, you have to be you know, pretty tough if you're a plant. I mean, you have to be able to live in a crack in the concrete, you have to, you know, which is heavily alkaline. So there's a pH factor. You think about all these things that influence what life occurs where. And so you think about the plants that are maybe naturally filtered by the rather unnatural circumstances of cities. And you end up with a profile of plants that most of us would just call weeds, right? Or but but you know, in ecological terms, they're they're ruderal. They're simply opportunists. They, they thrive amid the disturbance. And, and you know, it's not their fault for thriving. We're, we're the agents of disturbance here. So we've just created a circumstance where these sort of plants uh, can thrive. But but within that, you know, kind of realm, we have, uh, uh, we've chosen things you might expect to see, like common mullen. Uh, but uh, maybe the most provocative choice that we've made uh, is actually a butterfly bush, because, of course, a plant that, you know, is known in gardens and uh, attractive to butterflies superficially. But is proving to be quite aggressive and almost uh, in, and labeled as invasive in some parts of the world, including on both the East and the West Coast. So, so what we want to do is confront people a little bit with this kind of, at first perhaps beautiful and arresting kind of moment, but the longer they look at it, maybe the more they start to wonder, wow, you know, does that belong? Is that supposed to be here? And sort of, you know, generating questions from people about how they react to the vegetation of their surroundings. So how, what do you want the people who are standing there and looking at this and, and thinking, asking those questions, what do you want people to take away from this experience? I want people to realize that 
you know, our role, our actions, our activities in, you know, the ecosystems that we live in, even if that's a city, have ripple effects and you could even say consequences. And, you know, the, the title of the exhibit, A Beautiful Disturbance, is, I, I hope, something that inspires people to, to think about how to use those activities uh, towards a more abundant and, and resilient goal. Uh, you know, our disturbance doesn't simply have to be without effect or consequence, or it doesn't have to even be negative. It, it can be an opportunity to create something rather beautiful. And in the theme of the show this year, United by Flowers, you know, maybe the, the sociological element of what we're asking people to think about is how could a space seemingly unlikely for a garden uh, become a place of consilience, both you know, between humans and nature and maybe even among humans ourselves? I've seen the concept art for <laughs> for this show. Uh, people should follow you on Instagram, Kelly D. Norris, and, and you've posted the concept art. I hope you're also going to post a lot of pictures because yes. I'm not going to make it to, to Philadelphia. But this is so complex and you are bringing these plants that are not traditional plants that are, are really curated yeah. <laughs> in, into, into bloom at just the right time. You have said we a couple of times. How many people are involved in this project? Well, it, it takes a village. Uh, you know, we're, we're a small operation. Uh, I have uh, two employees uh, that support my work, and so both, uh, uh, both of those folks will be joining us, uh, as well as, uh, you know, three or four uh, extra hands, as well as a local contractor that's helping us with um, some of the hardscape elements and some of the early construction pieces that have to take place. And then not to mention, of course, the, you know, the growers who have been, you know, doing maybe all the heavy lifting at this point, uh, proverbially speaking, uh, to try and force these, uh, these plants into bloom and, and perfection at just the right time. Uh, so there, it, it does take a village. Uh, there's, uh, there's no way this, this could happen, uh, you know, entirely as a solo effort. So where are the growers located? Uh, in the Philadelphia region. So we have, we have two nursery partners. Uh, one, uh, our friends at uh, Peace Tree Farms, uh, Lloyd and Candy Traven, they're uh, certified organic growers. They do a lot of uh, organic vegetable, produ- vegetable production, uh, but also just have an incredible facility to be able to kind of handle the task of growing growing uh, 30-some species or so uh, for our exhibit. Out uh, of season. Out yeah. of season and forcing them and then holding them if they're getting a little too, you know, a little too fast about it. So it's a whole art in and of itself to bring uh, this kind of plant material, you know, 2,000, 2,400 plants or something uh, for the, the footprint of our exhibit uh, into the moment. We also have a, a nursery vendor uh, called Stony Bank Nurseries that's doing all of the trees uh, that we're bringing in for the exhibit. So you are traveling to Philadelphia this week. The The show is from March 2nd through the 10th. When do you actually start bringing plants in? I mean, you start, I'm sure you build the, the hardscape part right away. Right, but right. when do you actually start bringing plants in? The first load of plants arrives one week from today. <laughs> so uh, the trees will start to come in, uh, we hope, Monday afternoon. Uh, it depends a little bit on the delivery logistics. You can imagine, uh, you know, 10 or 12 landscape exhibits, uh, 12 floral exhibits, uh, another, you know, eight or nine educational exhibits, you know, and that's just one third of the footprint 
footprint of the show. And then the rest of it, of course, is uh, the the Hort Society's uh, exhibitions and then the vendors. And so, I mean, there's just, it's just a madhouse of, of people uh, that we're going to kind of be, uh, you know, dancing around to do all of this. So uh, plans start in, coming in on Monday and the, the, the bulk of the material from Peastree Farms will show up on Tuesday, and then it's a, a mad dash until, you know, 11.59 p.m. Thursday night because uh, judging starts then uh, Friday morning, March 1st. And in the, the environment at the convention center, I mean, that sounds like the world's worst environment for growing plants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. It's uh, from the, you know, you don't want to take plants too early. Uh, you know, this is the first time I have exhibited at the show. I've been to the show before as just an attendee. But, um, you know, all of our, our local partners and, you know, intelligent, experienced folks uh, who are involved are like, look, you don't want to take the plants too early. This is this is not a place for plants. Right. I mean, we do have, of course, a whole uh, lighting scheme that has to get uh, built into it as well. I mean, you have to think about the, truly the theatrical element of this. I mean, you're creating a uh, you have to create a sense of drama and kind of intrigue, uh, you know, for people as they're traveling and moving through the floor from exhibit to exhibit. And so uh, the lighting piece was sort of fun to kind of uh, uh, imagine and, and play with because uh, it, it in so many ways, just like you would with a stage production, uh, can do, you know, so much for not only the scenic experience, but but the story you're trying to tell. So this is your first time uh, as an exhibitor at the Philadelphia Flower Show. Have you done similar things in the past? We used to do, uh, on, a, on a very small scale, uh, you know, in, when I was at the Botanical Garden, uh, you know, 10 plus years ago, we used to do these uh, sort of conceptual exhibits inside the conservatory at the Botanical Garden. and uh, Which I've, is a I've, much friendlier space oh, for growing yeah. things. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's a, a controlled environment right, down an to ideal the... ideal space. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and soil, actual soil to plant things in. I'm still trying to get my mind around how we're burying pots in effectively what is like a coarse sawdust. That's the quote-unquote soil that we're working with. Uh, so that's just something to get your mind around. It's like, do you even need a shovel? No, you just need your hands. But uh, So I've, I've, I've really, uh, Charity, leaned on those memories uh, working with my team back in the early days uh, when uh, the nonprofit sort of began to reimagine the botanical garden. Like I said, 10 plus years ago, I've, I've really leaned on those memories about how we worked through all those details. Uh, and it's been, like I said, since July, we've really been kind of working on not only the concept, but then the construction and, and how all of it comes together. Has this been a, a dream of yours for a long time? It has. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's as I often say, it's sometimes a dream I didn't know, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know I had. Uh, it, it was, uh, I remember visiting for the first time I don't know, maybe about ten years ago, and thinking, "Wow, you know, this would be this would be quite a quite a thing to experience." Uh, but uh, I, you know, I never uh, maybe put myself in those in those shoes at that moment, and 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 here we are. Wow, this experience for people who attend these flower shows. I mean, I'm sure you've been to a lot of flower shows in your day, and there are people who come who are extremely knowledgeable about horticulture. And then there's the general public that just comes to see the beautiful flowers. You talked a little bit about what you hope, the questions that you hope people ask when they look at your exhibit. But in a bigger picture, what do you think is is the purpose of a show like this? That's a great question. I, you know, I think the the purpose of horticulture is, uh, 
you know, we, we are so essential in in modern life. I mean, it's it's you know, vegetation is the is the surface of the built environment. I mean, with no disrespect to our architect friends, you know, nobody goes into a coffee shop and says, "Gosh, did you see the color of brick on the side of the building?" But you know, if if somebody noticed a bountiful container that was you know full of flowers or something beautiful about the landscape, it. it it inspires a different kind of emotional reaction. And so, uh, you know, my public horticulture has been a, a, a prominent thread in my career in many forms now. And uh, I, I just think there's such a, a bigger conversation to be having about how to activate uh, more of the landscapes that we live and work in towards, you know, ecological ends, but also just, you know, to make the, the places we live and work, um, you know, more habitable and more hospitable and more accommodating and welcoming. And, uh, and I think shows like the Philadelphia Flower Show and, and all the great work that the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society does. It's an incredible organization, uh, you know, to advocate for community gardening and community greening. Uh, I didn't know this until I started working with them, but PHS uh, is responsible for 12,000 lots in greater Philadelphia for community gardening purposes, for urban and city greening. Uh, it's, it's just a magnificent organization. And so the Flower Show is in that way kind of a big fundraiser for all the many other programs that they're involved with and, and, and what they're doing. And, you know, so if, if you're one of the quarter of a million people who come through the show there in that first uh, 10 days of March, you know, you're, you're supporting some bigger role of horticulture uh, in that region. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want there to be more flower shows and more horticultural exhibitions around the country. Uh, it's a big country and, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of regional diversity and, and personality in our landscapes that, that we should celebrate again um, in the 21st yeah. century. Kelly, thank you so much for talking with me today. Kelly Norris is a self-employed planting designer and author, former director of horticulture and education at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden. He will be an exhibitor at the Philadelphia Flower Show in early March. This is Talk of Iowa.